Hi there, I'm Mark Icero, and this is the Highlighter Podcast. Hello and welcome to the 17th episode of the Highlighter Podcast. I'm really excited that you are listening, and I'm also looking forward to this week. This Thursday, in case you haven't heard, is going to be the second rendition of the Highlighter Happy Hour over at Room 389. So if you happen to be in Oakland, please come on by this Thursday beginning at 5.30. You'll get to be able to talk about the articles in the newsletter as well as meet the wonderful subscribers, the wonderful community that we have here. Anyway, hope you can make it. And now I wanted to let you know that I'm really, really excited to introduce to you this week's guest. Uh, on the show this week is my friend and colleague, Nancy Lai. She's wonderful. She's going to talk about reading. She is also the director of all things literacy over at Oakland Unified here in the Bay Area. And I think that she has a wonderful, wonderful perspective on literacy and we're going to be talking about the lead article in last week's newsletter. So please take a listen and let's get right to that interview. Well, hi, Nancy. How are you? I am excellent. How are you doing? I am doing great. Um, I hear that you are back from a weekend. Where were you? I was in LA for a wedding. Um, a coworker who became a friend in the last, I want to say, last couple of years. Um, so that was really nice. Um, and then also had a chance to go to Universal Studios, I think it's called, and Harry Potter World or Land, which was the fulfillment of many dreams. Yeah, I know that you're a big reader. Um, in case the audience doesn't know you, can you say a little bit more about yourself? Uh, so my name is Nancy Lai. I am the TK through 12th grade director of ELA History and Library Services for Oakland Unified. I think that's totally cool. And um, I think it's great that you're into reading, but how did you get into education in the first place? Oh God. Um, so I think this is like sob story, like backstory stuff with, you know, growing up low income, uh, immigrant English learner, and then actually having lots of opportunities to go to really excellent schools. Um, and then when I was in Really, I think it was college when I realized sort of the differences in my experiences growing up and the differences of my classmates. <clears throat> um, and then, you know, being involved in a lot of social justice type student activities and wanting to combine my love of literature and creative writing with also a sense of duty and responsibility to do something about the inequities um, and like try to level the playing field and just teaching became the thing to to combine the two I think you know I was a creative writing and an art major and it just didn't feel right to pursue those it was also not really safe for me to do that because I didn't really have any sort of safety net 
for me to to try those things out so maybe some of that was also fear around the unknown and the lack of financial security that those two th two other things represented so yeah that's I actually went to grad school before teaching oh actually before that I did a summer of um, at undergrad like summer school for quote-unquote underprivileged kids um, and that was really fun and interesting and then ended up applying to grad school for education yeah that's great and you were a teacher and um, you taught in yeah. Oakland and what did you notice most do you you've talked to me a whole lot about how reading was really the thing. How did you find that out? And what were some of the things you did as a teacher uh, to address the reading gap? Um, I think a lot of little moments, but the, the moments that I sort of, the one that I sort of tell most often and heard me in a professional context probably are like, Bleh, I don't want to hear this again. But it was, I had a class of boys who had self-selected to not take AP and not do honors English in the 12th grade. And I taught them previously as well. And we were doing what was then the pre-Common Core um, district benchmark multiple choice test. And I think because I built really great relationships with these boys over time, they like, and maybe told them that it reflected poorly on me if they didn't do well on the test. Um, they were really trying, right, and taking the test seriously. And one of the boys says, like, in the middle of the test, you know, if I could read these passages, I'd be able to answer these questions. Um, and another boy, so again, this is 12th grade, and he pulls me over, he points to a word, and he's like, what's that word? And it's, you know, and now that I think about it, it's, it's so heartbreaking because he was trying and wanting me to help him and the word he pointed to was landmark right and that's a as a 12th grader he couldn't read that um and i think that was for me a really ass-kicking moment whereas like what am i doing as a teacher you know like what is the point of teaching metaphor and simile and personification etc cetera, etc cetera? and so all of the sort of um stereotypical things that a, that an English teacher does if my kids can't actually understand the text that those things are in um, and I think at that time I was, was fortunate enough to have a coach from the then bases now National Equity Project who and like their organization was doing work around supporting reading um, and what it meant for high school teachers to support reading and so I, I was like the confluence of these, these kinds of events with my students and then the support that I had from my coach and my principal, and then really sort of carving out the time to learn what it really meant. And it's, it's something that's so absent from the secondary credentialing process for teachers, right? Like, because, you know, it's a given that students apparently are supposed to be able to read proficiently by that grade level, even though that's certainly not the reality. Um, so, yeah, I feel really fortunate um, that I had the right support at the right time so that I could really consider these things and try to get better at this thing that I didn't know how to do. Well, yeah, I appreciate your point also about secondary teachers. I, that's what I found out, too, is that there's such an emphasis on writing. Mm -hmm. 
um, and and not very much on reading in the high school. And I think it's great that do you find that in your current position, because you are in charge of, you know, pre um, pre kindergarten all the way through 12, are you noticing that maybe some of the elementary school teachers can can maybe coach or help the high school teachers uh, with reading instruction? Absolutely. I actually, I've been calling um, elementary people with elementary experience who then actually transition for whatever reason to work in middle or high schools as like magical unicorns. And actually, I think I wrote in an email semi-recently that I wish we could, and obviously I wouldn't fall under this category either, but that we should, we could mandate that all teachers of secondary actually put in some time in elementary and learn those skills before they're allowed to teach in middle and high school. I mean, not that that'll ever happen, but um, I've seen so many amazing things happen as a result of these particular magical unicorn people who um, just have this body of knowledge that is so important for, you know, particularly schools and students that, you know, aren't reading at grade level. Yeah. And what do you think? I mean, I've noticed that around fourth or fifth grade, um, something happens with students and their instruction around reading. And then we sort of see it going into middle school and then high school. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Ha what do you think happens there? And then what are you trying to do in Oakland to combat that or to to try to improve that? Oh, God, I, I think it's still the, the ship. It's still a mystery. I think like people talk about it as you know, the transition from learning to read to reading to learn. Um, and and my, get, my best guess is that they simply haven't done the learning to read deeply enough. Um, and and that's that's where the gap occurs. Um, what was the second part of your question? Well, what am I trying to do? Oh, Lord. Well, specifically, because I know we know each other a whole lot around independent reading, but I know that that's, pro that's probably just one of the strategies that you're using. Mm -hmm. I guess what my, qu my question is, what are you noticing is getting um, uh, some excitement? Uh, what are some of the things that teachers are, are doing that people are saying, oh, wow, there is hope here? Um, I... I think it's actually a lot of the excitement continues to be around independent reading. I think I, I was responsible um, several years ago for um, a bunch of money being spent to provide middle and high school English teachers with classroom independent reading libraries. I don't actually now in retrospect, I feel like I did this thing where I gave people resources, but then there was the, the missing piece of supporting around implementation or making pe making sure people understood the goal. And, you know, now that I think back on it, I'm like, I should have done like a opt-in collaborative inquiry group around independent reading. And, you know, to participate, you would get X number of books, but then we would have to come together monthly and talk about it and talk about best practices because I think some teachers use it and I think the vast majority probably are like, that was great, thanks, um, and probably aren't implementing independent re reading with any regularity. Um, I've seen a couple of middle schools start to take it on um, and then actually Ojai, where you're doing the work around the Kindle Classroom Project, um, 
there's a couple of teachers who do independent reading. I've also noticed some successes around this program called Light Sale, which has ebooks and helps mm -hmm. you know students and teachers track progress. I think within the next month, I want to start crafting some questions to, to gather some baseline information about the status of independent reading in our secondary schools. And I think I'm going to reach out to, you know, my, my connections at each of the schools and ask them, you know, how are they doing it? How long have they been doing it? Um, and sort of what, what are the conditions in place? What are the qualities of independent reading at their schools? And I think just to build out my sense of you know, what's the current context and, and is there interest and what questions do people have and like how can I, how can we as the district support that um, at a larger scale because I, you know, it's a research-based practice to do independent reading and kids need to read more in order to get better at reading. So that's my goal. Absolutely. And yeah, I I like that point a lot. I mean, sometimes I think that with my Kindle thing, as well as obviously with this highlighter, maybe my whole point is that I just want everybody to to read more, whether it's fiction or or nonfiction. And I am interested also, given that obviously our world is crazy right now, that I do wonder to what degree uh, young people can sort of develop their close reading as well as their skepticism of news sources by, by also um, collecting articles or finding articles that they themselves want to read. Mm -hmm. um, maybe even having like little highlighters, you know, per class, that would be sort of hilarious if, if each class had one or if, if different students had one. I find that like when I was an English teacher, I was constantly bringing in article like nonfiction articles from the real world, like stuff in the news. Like I, I always laugh about it because I brought in the 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 I think it was the New York Times article where Joe Biden called Barack Obama like articulate and clean. And this was, you know, well in advance of any thought of Obama being president and just like using that to help kids understand the world and, you know, be critical consumers of our, our reality. I think that was, no, I don't, I don't remember what your question was. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible that I didn't have one, but it is a good opportunity to make the transition to the article that uh, you wanted to talk about. Is it okay to chat about that for a few minutes? Yes, but before that, can I ask you a question? Yeah. I was wondering actually if you've seen any, like do you track when kids ask for books on their Kindles? Is there any like balance between the nonfiction and fiction that's being requested? Like is there a growing desire to read nonfiction or? I think it's a great question. I think that most of the books that students want to read in book form are definitely still fiction. Mm -hmm. And it's also it's also the same popular titles um, as as we have known about for the last five years. Yeah. So there's always the, the tried and true. But what I really like also, given given that the, the kids can request whatever book they want. What I really like is just what becomes popular 
um, each and every year. And the biggest thing that I think is hilarious is how much the kids like YouTube stars. So apparently if you're on YouTube and you're a YouTube star, you have to have a memoir. <laughs> and so you write, you write a book and then all the kids, especially ninth graders, they want to read the books of these YouTube star. It, it's hilarious to me. But I guess that's the closest that they get to nonfiction is yeah. usually memoir because most of the kids with the Kindles, um, they're using the Kindles to read for for mirrors, I think a little bit more than the whole Windows concept. Mm -hmm. um, they're really they're really using it to sort of identify more stories of people like them. And and I totally love that. And so um, usually they're not getting into sort of like what's happening across the world. Um, and, and what I find also is that a lot of the books, unfortunately, that are about topics um, across the world are, are at, a, at a higher lexile. And so students aren't necessarily going to self-select or self-choose mm -hmm. those. Uh, yeah, there is very little nonfiction that's written towards a teenage or younger audience. Yeah, which is sort of, which is sort of annoying that way. Maybe you should start writing nonfiction books. <laughs> Yeah, maybe Become you should too. That's... wildly famous and rich. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Rich is good. I, I hear that nonfiction is good moneymaker, actually. Yeah. Hey, so do you want to talk about the, the tsunami now? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you chose the lead article um, in last week's Digest, and it was about the effects of the 2011 earthquake and tsunami in Japan. I totally thought it was fascinating. That's why I put it up first. What did you think about it? What were some of your first impressions? Um, as I was reading, and I, I don't know if this is a, I think this is a function of reading on the internet. Um, it made me think of an article I'd read years ago and I went and ended up Googling it that came out in the New York Times in 2010 and the first thing it reminded me of was the, this idea that symptoms of mental illness express themselves differently across cultures, right? And so this idea of whatever post-traumatic um, stress disorder that people are experiencing, like, what, uh, what's his name? Ono, right? Like, mm -hmm. the result of the tsunami and, like, and, you know, how that manifested itself embedded in the context of his Japanese culture. Um, I think that was the first thing that was it, it reminded me of. Yeah, because uh, for folks who have not yet read it, and I definitely recommend it, um, here's this guy who was not personally affected by the tsunami, and yet apparently one day he wanted to sort of check it out, which I guess is curiosity. And then so he went closer to I guess where the tsunami was, then he came back and he started um, acting really like an animal, like a beast. And so he would sort of just follow the floor and he threatened his wife and it was really sad and really tragic. Um, but you're saying that it may have been something else. Like what, what were your thoughts about that? Well, I just think sort of the manifestation of your cultural religious beliefs then have an impact, like it, they have an impact on how you then um, experience mental illness. So like this, then the article continues and talks about sort of the relationship to ancestors, dead ancestors um, that the people have. And, and then I can see why like ghosts became sort of a, a 
frequent occurrence, whereas I think about like our American tragedies, and I don't think we have that same sort of um, symptom afterwards. Yeah, we definitely don't because we don't have more. I, I would say that in the American culture, there's not the sense of the relationship with with the dead. And um, so there's not this sense of the possibility, I guess, that people would be stuck in time or that they would be stuck between life and death. Though, of course, the Catholic tradition has the crazy purgatory, which you don't want me to get started on. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, but uh, and also we have uh, Day of the Dead that's coming up too. Um, but yeah, it was very interesting to read this article for me just to sort of see how um, how the culture was trying to make sense of this horrible, horrible um, tragedy. I mean, I do think there are also some elements of similarities, right? Like as you as I was reading, um, sort of towards the middle of the article, all of the different examples, and they reminded me of sort of American or Western uh, ghost stories where, you know, someone, you pick someone up in your cab and then um, halfway through the ride, they've disappeared. And then out of respect or fear, I, like then the cab driver drives all the way to the location that the ghost um, originally wanted to go to. And now that location is no longer there. Like very, you know, tales of the crypt kind of thing. Yeah, see, has that happened to you? Because if that happened to me and I was the cab driver or the Lyft driver, that would that would probably make me a little bit scared as well. Oh, yeah, I, I would shit myself. I don't, <laughs> um, yeah, I am very easily frightened. Um, I don't know if I, I don't think I believe in ghosts. I do have this weird story when I was um, in grad school living in an apartment with a bunch of girls, and I always had this creep, and this is so, like, stereotypical um ghost story but like i always had this creepy feeling from i i had a room in the back of the house and i always had this creepy feeling across at the house across the way from me and you know just as i was moving out hearing that somebody had killed themselves in that room not my room the the place across from us yeah it's not it's not good at all um but yeah what was weird about what was weird about this story is that at the end, I just didn't really get a sense. I was really hoping for a slightly different end. What were your thoughts about sort of the ending where for me, there wasn't sort of a resolution? I guess what I'm saying is here I am in the Bay Area. Obviously, this horrible event uh, happened six years ago, and I just totally felt like I was actually farther apart that I couldn't really understand what was going on. What were some of your thoughts at the end? Wait, are you saying that you felt more distanced from the event after having read the article than before? Is that not, not necessarily distant from the event, but um, so it was good for me to take the 20 or 30 minutes to understand more about what was going on. But I felt, I actually felt the horror even more. And I guess that was the point, but I wish that there was some way for me to explain um, what was going on. And, and how did you feel at the end? Um, I think there's, I feel like the way the 
author ended the article, like it it stayed in this place of skepticism, I think, around um, the use of uh, mediums. Is that is that the plural of a medium um, and psychics, right? Because, you know, it ends on that part. Let me go back to the article, something about um, their their contradictory story messages from the dead, right? Like one is that teachers are crying and we don't harbor any blame. Um, and then it then there's the competing message, which is that like we hate them. They didn't protect us. Um, and so I feel like that's, you know, it ends in this, like, makes it seem like the psychics are not on the up and up. They're like con artists. Um, and then I was thinking about the second to the last paragraph, actually, which um, this line really resonated with me. I wouldn't have been able to bear it, or these two sentences, I wouldn't have been able to bear it, but the words I heard always made me feel calmer. And like that just really, for me, triggered some like red flags, right? This idea that like these people are telling um, the survivors what they want to hear versus what, I don't know. I don't know what truth is in this situation. I guess that there's nobody there in the afterlife. <laughs> Uh, Nancy, thank you so much for being on the show. It's wonderful. You have been to a lot of places this weekend and you still made time. So thank you so much. You are so welcome. Big thanks to Nancy for coming on the show. Thank you. Um, you can't really go wrong when somebody talks to you about reading and about ghosts. So thank you for that. Also want to thank all of you out there for listening to the highlighter podcast. Please let me know what you think. You can send me an email to mark at highlighter.cc. If you want to come by and see me in person and see all the other subscribers, remember this Thursday over at room 389, we're going to be having the second highlighter happy hour. So swing on by. Once again, have a wonderful week and see you at the newsletter at 9, 10 a.m. this Thursday.